0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you
1: Mormonism
0: Life.
2: RFM. How are you doing this fine, exceptional day? I'm doing great, Bill
3: real. How are you doing? I'm doing good, my friend. Look at my new glasses. What do you think? I think you look so smart that I want to put on my glasses so I can look I, as smart as you.
2: Look at that. That's what we should do. We should have glasses. And I don't know if Lindsay wears glasses when we have her on here in a minute, but maybe she could put some on. She could be a
3: member of the Poindexter Club.
2: The Poindexter Club. Hey, um, first off, Sally Eagle, if you see right there, Sally Eagle is the yes. newest YouTube member of Mormonism Live. Sally, thank you for. For becoming a member good for you i'm I'm excited to kind of see that kind of grow um last week rfm you talked to us uh, a little bit about this whole planet situation we we mormons were raised with the idea that we're getting a planet and and now the church says we're not getting a planet but maybe we still get a planet um what do you think here this is this is uh uh the church newsroom on the left and it is saying, do we get a planet? And their answer is no, this idea is not taught in Latter-day Saint scripture, nor is it a doctrine of the church.
3: Yeah, we read that last week.
2: Yeah, but then you've got Rusty Nelson here in 2018, First Presidency Christmas devotional. It ends with, in time, you may live as we live and preside over worlds king and kingdoms as we do. If you preside over a world, is that your world? yes. it seems like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing
3: there's definitely mixed messages going on i once again think that there's a a voice and a message that's given directly to the latter-day saints and then there's a message given to the outside world and sometimes those two messages don't necessarily meet
2: no they yeah it seems like different people among the voices that have power, decide what we believe and they can't agree, can they? Yeah, it's like Kipling
3: said, east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet.
2: That's right, like ships passing in the night. (laughs) Um, So uh, a couple other things too. Somebody here is already asking, is Jared on yet to tell us again this topic isn't worth discussing? (laughs) Haven't heard from Jared yet, RFM. He's not going to be on
3: the show because apparently he hasn't made contact. He has not responded to the gracious invitation issued by... Mr. Bill Real.
2: Yeah, hopefully at some point he does come on. Uh, tonight, folks, we are going to talk about polygamy. Uh, anything from you, RFM, before we get started?
3: Oh, just that, you know, I'll, I'll let you get on with the introduction because I'm just really excited that we've got one of the premier voices and researchers and experts in the field yeah. of polygamy on the show tonight.
2: Yeah, we've got one of the rock stars of Mormonism, uh, Lindsay Hanson Park. Lindsay, how are you?
1: Oh, hello there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Lindsay, you're looking dapper.
1: Thank you. These are my blue light glasses. So when you said glasses, I was like, well, I've got glasses.
2: Mm. Love it. I love it. Poindexters uh, of the world unite. That's right. we will just it
1: um, down here.
2: Just FYI to the listeners, um, donations have been down the last uh, couple of weeks. If, if anybody's out there and you're on the fence, If I could just say, please, mormonismlive.org, click the donate button. Otherwise, you can right to the right of this. So just over there on the other side of RFM, uh, you'll see that you can also, on YouTube anyway, you can donate that way as well. But we really like the donations to come through the website, and we really would encourage you, if if possible, to make it a recurring donation. They mean a ton to us. Um, There's a certain amount of income that that needs to come in so that we not only uh, take care of the entity, but that we also um, have enough left over to, to pay the podcasters uh, for the work that they do so that we can keep doing this for a long time to come. We're having a ton of fun with the show. Lindsay, I am so excited to have you on. Um, as we were prepping for this, I was throwing out all the normal stories that we, we go over in Mormonism about polygamy. But I, I don't know that we've ever thrown them out in one show. And so before we start, do you want to say anything? I mean, I I think everybody on this show is going to know who you are, but if you want to give a brief intro or anything else you want to add before we jump into it.
1: Sure. Yeah. I just want to talk about Sunstone really quick because it's coming up at, at the end of this month. And so it's such a crazy time and my brain's a little scattered. But July 28th through the 31st Sunstone Symposium, we're doing a hybrid this year. If you don't know what Sunstone is, we basically, our tagline is there's more than one way to Mormon and we feel like the conversation is enriched when different perspectives come together so we bring together everything from the most ardent atheists or ex-mormons or non-mormons to very faithful mormons fundamentalists and we all talk about stuff so we have a conference at the end of every july and this year it's at the mountain america expo center in sandy utah hybrid, half online in the morning, in person, in the evening. We have some incredible presentations. I'm really actually excited. I, w- I was worried about how this year would shape up because of COVID, COVID, and we have a really great program. So that's happening, and we have a Mormon Trivia Night, and someone on my Facebook just uh, suggested that you two should be on a team. So you guys have been called out You've been asked to come on. Uh, we're doing a Mormon trivia night hosted by the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast host, which is myself and Brian Buchanan and Christina Rossetti, who's another scholar. We're going to host it. And then we've got prizes and nerd hats for the winners of the trivia. So you guys could do well.
3: Well, well you're, are you still on mute? Are you on mute there, Bill? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, so um, RFM and I
2: get to team up on a trivia
1: so, yeah, we're having a trivia contest about Mormon history, and we're letting mm. you pick teams up to, I believe six people. and uh, which I don't want anyone to be intimidated because you can join. We've got questions for all different levels, but we do have some really big nerds that uh, like like you guys that could <laughs> join. so
2: we're we're gonna get some other folks. We've already been working on this, so it's RFM. Uh, me it's greg prince richard bushman and terrell Givens, Perfect. and uh we'll add fiona claudia and um how about you be on our team too Lindsay? and then
1: no, I, I think i don't know um you guys don't sound like you know what you're talking about i don't know if, what our odds would be
2: <laughs> it probably I, would I, I prefer so to get history.
1: all my mormon history from like um you know facebook groups where we deny that joseph smith was a polygamist It's kind of of
2: thing i I think maybe we should hit on that at some point tonight because i think that's such a that's such a um odd position to take i think with all the data and i and i get why they do it i just don't know why they don't see the the pieces that are left kind of adding together to say something different but um, grateful to have. Well, you. I'm
1: always like at Sunstone. I'm like, you know, we need, just need to respect other people's opinions and be nice. But when it comes to that one issue, I'm like, ah. Yes.
3: I go was, so hard. Yeah. The right, question of right. the question of who is Joseph Smith's second wife could cause a riot.
1: Yeah. It it actually well, it depends. It could in the Mormon historical community too. That's what Brian Buchanan and I were just arguing about before we came. Which one was considered Joseph Smith's first plural wife?
3: So, mm. I'm wait. Well, I want to just tell you that uh, I absolutely love your podcast, which I know you've been doing for a while now. I think I was listening from almost the very beginning. Of course, I'm referring to your wonderful podcast, A Decade in Polygamy. (laughs) No, 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 I'm kidding. Of course, that's not the real name. The real name is...
1: But really, though.
3: It's A Century in Polygamy.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's the real name. polygamy That's what it should be called, Too Much Polygamy. (laughs) Too
2: Much Polygamy. Well, we can't ever get enough polygamy, so we've got you on today. <laughs> that is and, true. Um,
1: World well, without end, over yeah. and over. As Bill's
3: well, well, as trying unsuccessfully so far to segue into the actual material for tonight's content. show.
2: Content. Yeah, let's let's start with Fanny, and I'm going to say her last name, Alger, is that right? Or is it Alger or Algier? Or? No one knows.
1: Nobody <laughs> knows. Everybody, Alger works, that's how I say it too.
2: Okay, so Fanny Alger, and... Uh, Again, I know there's some debate and we're going to, I'll give a brief synopsis of the story and then you take it from there and tell us maybe what we're missing. Um, And I wanted to kind of cover some of the more problematic uh, situations within polygamy and Joseph Smith's lifetime. And so with Fanny, she is, uh, we're going to guess somewhere around 1836-ish, right? Mm -hmm. and uh she might be you know might be a little earlier might be a little later somewhere between the ages of 16 and 18 she is working in the smith home as a maid she's stopping by the smith home helping keep the house clean uh helping emma you know keep keep things in order um while he goes out and does profit stuff and before long he is approaching fanny uh again as a maid in his home and um they there's argument about whether this situation was a sexual situation or not. There's not any doubt in my mind, but there isn't some. And uh, uh, Emma Smith reports to William law that she saw the entire transaction through the bar barn. Um, Oliver Cowdery writes his brother, Warren Cowdery, and says that this whole escapade was a filthy, nasty scrape. And it's believed that maybe Warren Cowdery uh, crossed off scrape and wrote a fair. And um, it's the first instance I think we have of Joseph Smith approaching a young woman that that is working, living, serving, staying in the Smith home. And so this is one that folks really kind of uh, gravitate to first in this history. And I also should note that there is disagreement about whether any kind of actual marriage took place or not. I think it's either Levi Hancock or his son or somebody who comes along and says –
1: it's
2: um, you know, yeah. And so they say like, Hey, my dad was there. He performed the ceiling. Um, I know that happened. And yet I think there's also the argument that maybe that's kind of being written after the fact uh, or being added in after the fact, your thoughts on Fanny Alger.
1: Okay. So just right out the gate, uh, Brian Buchanan would kill me if I didn't say this, there's very little evidence about this entire thing at all. It's very scant. And before we make a judgment on that, I would just say a lot of people have awkward. We're going to just call it an affair affairs with people because outside of a religious context, that's at least how everyone saw it. lots of people have affairs and they don't like to keep copious records about those things. So we don't have a lot. We have a sketchy outline. We have a sketchy outline about Fanny and her life. And what we do know is that when she was 16, her family comes to the territory. She has some sort of relationship with the family. Uh, it was not uncommon during Victorian times, mostly as an answer to, to poverty. When people had a lot of kids, they would send their oldest ones to go live in the home of someone else as a working girl, as, a, as working on the farm. This happens as we're gonna talk about as a whole pattern with, in Nauvoo. And Joseph develops a relationship with Fanny Alger. What we do know is that she was beautiful, that she was described as comely and uh, liked by everyone. Everyone seemed to like her, she was very likable. And of course, there's a story, there's actually at least two accounts uh, of people knowing that Emma discovers, you know, Joseph Smith with Fanny in rolling around in the hay. So she, she basically kicks her out. And this is where it gets a little interesting for me. <laughs> this is what Brian and I were just talking about because I'm always not so historically minded and more interested in the story of things sometimes. And so I I want to look for the the dirty deets and the scandal in it. She marries a man named Solomon Custer just a few months, three about I think three months after she's kicked out of the home and then she has a baby very quickly. So I believe it's Don Bradley who's working on a theory, I don't know if he's published his research yet, that uh, this could be a potential child of Joseph Smith. The marriage is very quick, she moves away very quick, and then they don't really talk about it. So uh, that's an interesting theory that happens with Fanny Alder. There, Mosiah Hancock does give um, an account years later that there was a ceremony performed. Some people believe that that was sort of, like you said, a rewriting of history to understand the rest of joseph smith's relationships because it seems like at least in 1836 the majority of the people that were there on the ground saw it as an affair at the time
2: so um we don't know the specifics of when this child was born after she left because she doesn't really say anything it's she does seem to indicate she's going to keep confidences about whatever happened
1: well so this is this is the thing and Uh, historians are going to roll their eyes at me because I'm going to say this again. There is hardly anything that we have documentary evidence unless Don has found something that that's really explosive, but we do uh, Brian was looking this up on family search, which means nothing because the history there is terrible. He did find their first child was listed as an Orson Smith Custer born in 1838. Now that's the only place where we can find it so far because like I said, we just did it before this show and I was like, wait, we gotta, we gotta look into that. The problem is, is you don't have censuses really been t- being taken until 1850. So people don't, you know, to have a family record is very, very rare unless the family wrote it down or something like that. But I do think that it's curious that there's a Orson Smith Custer listed as her first child.
2: Orson Smith Custer, huh? Those first two parts of that name have some some Mormon uh, leanings in them, don't they? Anything else on this story? Go ahead, please.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say one other thing. You said that this was uh, his first known relationship with a woman in his home, which I think that that is true. Uh, The other other thing I was looking up today, because I had forgotten about this, I'm rereading well... uh, My boyfriend is rereading Under the Banner of Heaven for the first time. So he's like telling me stuff that he's listening to and learning. And he said, you know, Krakauer describes another first wife of Joseph Smith and it's not Fanny. And I was like, what? I don't remember that. But I do, I had to look it up, uh, there were rumors that he was having an affair with Miranda Hyde in 1832. That's one of the reasons he was probably tarred and fe- feathered. You know, when he's pulled out, he's taking care of these Murdoch twins that they had just gotten, one of them gets sick, um, and they try to castrate him. So uh, there's, there's evidence that in 1832, he might've had an affair with Miranda Hyde. At least that's what his critics thought, if that makes sense. Yeah. And- so that's four years before the Fanny Alger thing. And then of course Miranda goes on to marry Joseph in 1841
2: or 42. Yeah, I we'll get into some of the rest of these that kind of point to this uh habitual pattern of um approaching young women in his home. Um and, and Anyway, I just we should probably move on. I'll, I've got some things maybe we can add to that later. But the other
3: story, RFM, anything from you on Fanny Alger? Just a couple of things because, you know, she's like a cleaning in the house. It reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza has sex with the cleaning lady in the office. Remember, he gets the job and his boss calls him in and confronts him. George, did you have sex with the cleaning lady on your desk? And there's that beat and he goes, was that wrong? <laughs> because if that was wrong, I never would. You're fired, George. You're fired. Okay, Uh that's the first thing. Second thing is, it's so interesting back here because it's a bit squishy on the dates, I know, with Fannie Alger. But we do know that in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, so we've got a good date on that, 1835, when it was published, section 101 was in there, which is no longer in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's a a statement on marriage, where in verse 4, the church issues a proclamation and a uh, rebuttal to allegations that they have been practicing polygamy. So what that tells me is that as early as 1835, there was enough uh, stuff going on and enough controversy and enough allegations about people in the church practicing polygamy that they felt it was necessary to issue a public denial of it in the Doctrine and Covenants. So that sounds like it may be before Fanny Alger and therefore point to other things that might otherwise be lost to history. Mm. what are your thoughts
2: I think that's a great point by the way Lindsay anything from you on that did like the idea that these rumors are going around
1: yeah I just think it just backs up what I was saying which is uh the Miranda Hyde thing if if you look at it through the lens that Joseph had an attraction to and a relationship with Mirinda Hyde her plural marriage later on makes a lot of sense because I mean her whole history makes a lot of sense so I tend to think that there was probably something there I'm not one that shies away from in the historical community. Like, we, oh, we can't count it as an affair. I uh, am a woman around a lot of Mormon men, and I've seen all kinds of, kinds of things. I don't, I don't think that it's too. I mean, we we take such lengths to explain away Joseph's attraction to women and his perpetual history with women. I mean, he has he's one of the few men that has a documented record of all the women he's been with. So I don't know why it's so unbelievable for people to think that that started a lot earlier.
3: Yeah, apparently it did. And the other thing is that we were talking earlier about um, uh, how Bill was sort of making the title to this like a uh, little shop of horrors, right? The horrors of polygamy. And I had said, he has to be really careful to pronounce that word correctly. I, I did no such thing. Other. Well, this, I'm just talking about a conversation. You weren't a part of this no. film.
1: Yeah. And well, and, like I said, there were horrors involved. I mean, it, this I is the thing. Grant Palmer stuff. If you look at it there, there are accusations that Joseph Smith was visiting prostitutes as early as I think 14 or 15. And again, the records on that are pretty scarce, but there are newspaper printings where, you know, these women have gone forward and said, Hey, I would, that guy tried to hit on me or whatever. And so, there were definitely women speaking out before the Fannie Algar thing. Fanny for her situation, she seemed to have an affection for Joseph. She never badmouthed them when people asked her about it later on. She really wouldn't talk about it. To me, that that shows that I mean she was 16, so she was still pretty young. But that shows that she sort of was for it. At, at least that's my take. But again, there's so little history on it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and then you have to deal with if someone under age is excited about such a thing. Does that still make it okay or appropriate, and all those kinds of things, right? So, um, just because a young person who may be influenced in certain ways thinks that something's appropriate, um, when I when I was on Reddit early on, when I joined ex Mormon Reddit, there was somebody on there whose username was Orson Hide Your Wife, and. It, <laughs> I thought it was quite kind of funny with the Miranda whole situation. Cause you're right. Later on, she does end up getting sealed to Joseph. And so this idea of you know, uh, Orson Hyde with his name spelled correctly. And then your wife at the end, I thought was a kind of a little funny little moniker.
1: Pretty sure. I know who that is actually. Good. Good. Funny person. Yeah.
2: We won't dox you here, my friend, but, <laughs> but there's that. The, uh, the next story that catches my eye is the Lucy Walker story. And I've, I've done a big episode on it. And, to me, it is the easiest one for me to go to when somebody is trying to claim that, that polygamy is practiced in innocent ways. Uh, Lucy Walker is 15 years old. Her father, uh, her mother dies of some illness. I don't remember what it is, but she passes away. Joseph Smith approaches the father, says, you don't look good. You're going to you're going to have the same demise as your wife. Why don't we send you on a mission and get you away from all of this? I'll take care of your three oldest kids and uh, the youngest ones will put into another home. I will you know, give my word that they'll be taken care of. Otherwise, I'll take them into my own house. So he takes the three oldest children, which includes Lucy Walker. Her father ends up going on the mission. She writes about how without a mother or father, she, she struggled to even know how to make, make choices or have someone to go to to be comforted. Joseph Smith takes the Walker daughters, because two of the three that are in his home are these sisters, and he takes them out into public, and he announces to the public whenever he's greeting with them, he says, these are my daughters. So he is owning on some level, a, uh, I I would call it a foster parent type of relationship behind closed doors. He approaches Lucy Walker and wants her to be a plural wife of his gives her, uh, an evening to figure it out. She comes back the next day and hadn't slept all night, struggled to make a decision. Didn't feel an answer goes to Joseph and says, I, I don't know what to do. I, I can't I can't decide yes. And he gives her 24 more hours to make a decision, tells her that, it, that that'll be it. After that, the gate will be closed against her, if I remember the quote right. And um, she then goes back to her home for another evening and, again, doesn't sleep. You can only imagine the kind of pressure one would feel, the angst, the turmoil. Hence, uh, I have a hard time believing she got any sleep at all, probably as she worried about all of that. Um and I, and I want to talk about why I think that's important here when we get to this part. But uh, she comes back the next day and says she had received a spiritual answer that she knew that the that she was to be a plural wife of Joseph Smith and she proceeds. But I have a hard time with a heavenly Father, Lindsay, who would take somebody who's in a foster parent kind of relationship. And then Heavenly Father himself would want to change that into a father. Uh, or a husband-wife relationship, and so I struggle with kind of putting that on God's uh, shoulders. Your thoughts on the Lucy Walker story?
1: Well, what you just said is an important pattern for Joseph in Nauvoo with these women who lived with him. Lucy Walker and the women we're going to talk about after both said so. This would be three women, just in our in our podcast tonight, who said that they when they moved into the Smith home they saw that the children as their siblings as their brother and sisters and Joseph and Emma as a mother and a father several times they refer to this it's not an isolated thing that's how they saw it which makes sense because they were children when they move into the Smith home and Smith was very paternal towards them that's very clear her Lucy Walker's story is the most disturbing because with a modern lens it reads as grooming it's uh he knows the family for a while. What I thought was really interesting is Lucy's mother was the only daughter of seven boys. And when she joins Mormonism, her family is devastated They're They just were so in love with their daughter. They're worried about her going off into this. And when she goes to Nauvoo, of course she dies and they're even more devastated. But before the family had left, they had sent uh, Lucy's older brother, I'm trying to remember what his name was. They, Lauren, they send him to live with Joseph Smith and farm for Joseph Smith. So right away, Joseph Smith is becoming really close with the family. And when they first come into Nauvoo, the Walker family, they meet Joseph through Lauren, who's been working there. So he vouches for him. Eventually, Joseph really finds several ways to be around the, the children. When Lucy's younger sister is dying, I think I want to say it was of malaria. She, uh, Joseph Smith comes and blesses her and carries her into the river and baptizes her. And of course it doesn't do anything. She dies, but Lucy was very taken in by this. This is a man who cares about our family. My mother gave everything for this. This means so much, but with all of that, when she's approached with it, she gets sick about it. And I think that that's really important for you to understand how grooming works, how people get caught into these things. I mean, the fact that she was trapped, she was trapped her whole life, her, um, her, the faith of her parents, the, the sort of martyr, martyrdom of her own mother really strengthens her belief that this was something that she wanted. And if you want, I don't know if we have time, but I could read some of her words because I think they're pretty chilling.
2: Yeah, I would love that, by the way. And before you start, I think this is a big thing for people. It's more, the, the LDS Church, in its correlated curriculum and in all the places it talks about its history, it never gives you this information, right? It tells you, for instance, that Mary Elizabeth Rawlings-Leitner gathers up the book of commandments in her dress and saves the the church can't you know scriptural work there but they never tell you that mary elizabeth rawlings leitner is a plural wife of joseph smith or that she was approached when she was 12 years old and that's her own words in this instance with lucy walker i don't think believers even have a clue where this information is coming from because they don't even they have no access to it they're never told about it this is coming from her own journal correct
1: well, yeah. And I was going to tell you, I have her, her autobiography that I can send to you because RFM said that you were really into this topic specifically her, her story. So I can send it to you because it's actually a really beautiful read for several reasons.
2: I would love that. And if it's, if it's a document that's accessible on the internet, I'd love to put it in the show notes for others to read as well.
1: Absolutely. It's hosted at the University of Utah library. So it's online, digitized. You can see it um, in her own words. So I'll just read what she says about this time. She says, she talks about when her mom is sick. She says, 10 motherless children and such a mother. The youngest was not yet two years old. What were we to do? The prophet came to our rescue. He said, if you remain here, brother Walker, you will soon follow your wife. You must have a change of scene, a change of climate. You have come just you have such, I'm sorry, you have just such a family as I could love. My house shall be their home. I will adopt them as my own. For the present, I would advise you to sell your effects, place the little ones with some kind friends, and the four eldest shall come to my house and be received and treated as my own children. And if I find that others are not content or treated right, hold on, I will bring them home and keep them until you return. I wrung my hands in the agony of despair at the thought of being broken up as a family and being separated from the loved ones, but said the prophet, my home shall be your home, eternally yours. I understood him not. However, my father sought to comfort us by saying two years would soon pass away and he would have renewed health. He hoped to return soon and make a home where we might be together again. And. It's right after, it's in the same year that her mother dies, 1842, that Joseph Smith approaches her. And she said, here's how she says it. I have a message for you. I have been commanded of God to take another wife and you are the woman. My my astonishment knew no bounds. The announcement was indeed a thunderbolt to me. He asked if I believed him to be a prophet of God. Most assuredly I do, I replied. He fully explained to me the principle of plural or celestial marriage said this principle was given to be restored for the benefit of the human family, that it would prove an everlasting blessing for my father's house. What have you to say? Joseph asked. Nothing, she replied. How could I speak or what could I say? And then she basically, like you said, she goes through this whole thing. She didn't want to do this. She was sick about it. And finally, when she does talk to him, he says, you know, I can't acknowledge you as my wife right now. Sorry, but beyond the Rocky Mountains, I'll be able to. And she, this is a quote that uh, I'm just going to read it unless you, you guys want to hurry, but let me just get this one in. She said that um, if she rejects the message, Joseph gives her a penalty and a threat. If she rejects the message that the gate of attorney will be forever closed to her, her mother just died. She understands the importance of this. She said, this aroused every drop of scotch in my veins. I felt at that moment I was called to place myself upon the altar, a living sacrifice, perhaps to brook the world in disgrace and incur the displeasure and contempt of my youthful companions. All my dreams of happiness blown to the four winds. This was too much. The thought was unbearable. I think that tells you the sort of uh, flirtation that Joseph Smith engaged with threats and penalties, coercion, grooming i mean i hate to say it that's what it is and i i used to sort of tiptoe around that because it was uncomfortable for me to say as a you know as a mormon person but i i've seen too much of it in live time working with the flds groups like that it's it's we got to call it for what it is or we're allowing others to justify it
2: yeah and the thing that strikes me Lindsay, is if i was given if i'm if i'm Again, she was 15 when she when this whole thing started. I think she's 16 when the actual marriage takes place. If I was a 16-year-old kid and my dad's off on a mission, my, my mom is passed away, and this guy who promised to take care of me is now making advances on me, and I believe him to talk to God, and I'm given 48 hours, two 24-hour intervals to think about it, And in those two 24-hour intervals, I can, again, only imagine the angst and turmoil that is weighing on her. It seems pretty expected by me that one would have their brain do some things. Again, there's a certain amount of sleep. If we don't get, we start to hallucinate. There's a certain amount of pressure that when people are under, they tend to see and hear and experience things that aren't really there. And I am struck when I studied this story before I did the episode several years ago. Um, I was struck by the likelihood that she did think she had a spiritual experience, but that knowing the coercion and um, pressure that was on her, I-, I wouldn't have expected anything less.
1: Yeah, I again I would say people hate when I compare Joseph Smith to like the the modern Flds, but. I would say we need to pay attention to modern polygamy. There are some distinct differences between modern polygamy and Joseph Smith's time. And of course not every fundamentalist group is like the FLDS, I'm just gonna say that. When I say FLDS, I'm talking about Warren Jeff's group. But when you hear the stories of women entering into polygamy or being assigned or being asked to do things that the prophet is asking their narratives are very similar. Now it could be that they're mirroring the narratives of the past, which is a problem, but also I think that there's something to it. When, when this is your world, this is the waters you swim in and you see, you know, an airplane, you don't know how to make sense of it out of the context of living in the water. So you, you make up a story of living in the water. And I think that's how polygamy was for Lucy Walker specifically. Her whole family was so entrenched in it for so long with Joseph Smith and the importance of it. So when he says something that, that makes her feel ill, she she has no way to reconcile it except for, you know, some sort of divine experience telling her because she really had no choice. She was under his control. She, a girl of her age, a woman, a white woman at that time had no power. So, or had very little power and she, She had to say yes, and I think her brain had to bring her to a yes, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and it's also interesting to note that Joseph Smith says, I will take the three oldest kids into my home, and the youngest ones will place somewhere else, and that Lucy was the youngest of those three older kids. And so the idea that he cut it off right at that point of the person he was interested in um, also deeply bothers me. RFM, any thoughts from you on the Lucy Walker story?
3: I did have a question about Lucy Walker. Did she die in full faith and fellowship in the church?
1: She, I believe she did. So her story is, her story is really sad to me because she marries Heber C. Kimball. And I feel sorry for anyone that married Heber C. Kimball because he was poor and he had 34 wives and he was gone all the time. And he, you know, his wives were the ones running away as soldiers. They were unhappy. Um, She there's this apocryphal story about Heber C. Kimball being on his deathbed and him calling Lucy to his bed and basically saying, like, now, remember, you're going to tell Joseph when we die that I was cool to you. Right. Like, that's basically what he says. And she agrees to it. So, yeah, she she stayed faithful again when that's your whole life. I mean, yeah, we can talk about this later, but the I was telling you on our phone call earlier, the isolation that people experienced in the Utah period, you were stuck in Mormonism ge- geographically. And so it made it very hard for people to leave. It was just easier to stay.
3: And if I can put a fine point on this, Lindsay, the reason I asked the question is because I know that with some other uh, people, some other women who reported being plurally married to Joseph Smith, like um, Orson Pratt's wife.
1: Heights, yeah.
3: Well, didn't Orson Pratt's wife, wasn't she also?
1: Yeah, Sarah Pratt, yes, yes. And then she
3: ends up leaving the church and becoming a huge anti-polygamous crusader, right?
1: Yeah, she does. She writes literature about it. She, um, she joined an organization, wrote a lot of angry letters.
3: So by comparison, I know that it's very common for uh, apologists or defenders of Joseph Smith or Mormonism to look at uh, Sarah Pratt, correct? Sarah Pratt and say, well, we can't trust anything she said because she left the church, she became embittered, so she's just venting and making stuff up. But it's harder to say the same thing about Lucy Walker and what she wrote in her diary because she was faithful to the end. So you don't have that argument against her that she's just making this up.
1: Well, and I would say it's not just, um, it's not just what she would write at the time. What, what we mostly know are later reminiscences from her. Which is interesting because in those, she's very candid, I think, about saying how much she hated it. She now, writing this, she had all this context to understand in her mind why, you know, what the doctrine was about. I think she even says it, I think it's her account that says, you know, in those days you couldn't, plural wives, it's not like it is now. Plural wives had to be secret. But she talks about how miserable it was for her. It was a hard experience. And I think that it doesn't get more um, faithful as a source than that.
2: Mm-hmm. And on, on this early story of Fanny Alger, and I know we're, we're, we're kind of guessing maybe on that one. And then with Lucy Walker and of course, some of the others too, maybe we can jump in and say the same thing. Do we know if Emma knew about these at least, at so, least happening? Not after the fact.
1: We do know that Emma knew something about Fanny because she <laughs> discovers it. We do know it was some sort of scandal and embarrassment to her. Lucy Walker, I'm trying to remember. I don't think so. She, Emma really only knew about four yeah. really solid marriages. And I mean, she, of course, I, I, I think she knew about a lot more than that. I think that Emma knew in some way who her husband was. If it goes back to Miranda Hyde, if it goes back to Fanny, she knew that there was something going on there. That's my opinion.
2: Um, and then the other question I'm trying to remember offhand here. Um, Oh, I don't remember. But Jer- Jared, who's a, a big fan of the show, he comes from the believing perspective, and he's constantly pushing back against what we say. Um, one, his point here is that no, none of these women are criticizing Joseph, which isn't true. As you pointed out, RFM, Sarah Pratt, and I know Brigham Young runs into the same problem where a, a wife or two end up kind of doing exposés on him. But do we know, Lindsay, if um, – like what would be the re like these women for the most part, they do seem to defend Joseph Smith. But as you also point out, there's a social cost involved, right?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think it's unusual for plural wives to defend their husbands. The The, the interesting thing about polygamy is it, it institutionalizes, it codifies if Joseph Smith was um, in mo- a modern lens, grooming young kids, uh, abusing people, what this doctrine essentially does is legitimize it into a, a marriage system where the, where the woman is consenting. She's agreeing to the marriage. She's uh, getting praise and, and reinforcement and rewards for being the mo- Uh, these wives, it was hard at first when it was a secret society, but they were getting, they were getting special um, time with the prophet, which was, which was a big deal. Their families were being rewarded. Their brothers, we can, in several cases, their family members were being promoted. Even um, Orson Hyde, who we were just talking about with Miranda, he ends up when he finds out that his wife is sealed to Joseph Smith. He basically gets in a fight with her and marries a couple other women because why not? So people, the, the idea of this is it gets everybody involved. Everyone's invested in it. And I don't think that we can just dismiss it as like a choice that you just walk away from. It becomes a system that you're participating in, that you're talking to other people about. And by the time these women get to Utah not only are they isolated so that their options are severely, severely limited. I can't overstate that. Uh, Geographically, there are no roads or planes, trains, and automobiles. You're stuck somewhere. And to travel out, you need a huge supply train to even survive. So you're stuck there. And so that's part of it. But Wives of Joseph Smith were venerated in Utah. They named forts after you. Louisa Beeman had a fort named after her. People would talk about it. They had monuments, they had parades where they would carry a banner with these women. It was a, it was it gave them power in a very um, hard society where women had very little power. So it makes sense to me that those early years would have been a good experience uh, for them later on remembering it.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, anything else, RFM, before we go to the next one?
3: No, no, I think that's about it. But I do think that in response to Jared's question, the answer is that yes, there were women who were married to Joseph Smith and knew him who did speak evil or ill of him later on. And Sarah Pratt would be exhibit A in that regard.
2: Yeah. I remember my question now, Lindsay, which was do, do you trust Will I think it's William Law, going back to the Fanny Alger story, it's William Law who tells Joseph Smith the third that Emma told him that she had seen the whole transaction through the barn. Do you trust William law as a, as a witness to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think William law is a trustworthy source. I think anyone that says he isn't is just holding on to old, you know, Mormon persecution, complex polemics. He, but there's no reason to make him a, uncredible witness. I've heard people say, well, some of those interviews were conducted years later. Well, so were the polygamy affidavits, but we believe those. So you can't pick and choose. I, I think he's a credible uh, historical witness.
2: Perfect. Love it. The, the Partridge sisters, um, if I remember right, their ages are like 18 and 21, I think. And maybe it's 19 and 21 or 19 and 22. They 19 uh, and
1: 20 when they move there and then the marriages, they're double marriages. They're a little bit older.
2: So Fanny Alger made in the home. Lucy Walker is being watched over by Joseph Smith, the prophet in a role of father in their home. The Partridge sisters are staying in the Smith home, correct?
1: They are. And can we talk about how they got there first? Cause I think Jeez. that's important context. Love it. So I call the Partridge sister story, the endowment story. <laughs> because it really is tied to how we get the endowment. But to understand their story, you have to understand who their father was. So their father was Edward Partridge. He was the first bishop of the church. He was always like acquiring property and then the church was always like taking it away and losing it for him. But he remained faithful. His whole family is another one like Lucy Walker, who is just so incorporated in the church from early on. And so Partridge comes to Nauvoo, and then he dies. Now, you know him from the story of being like tarred and feathered in the streets and in independence. That's uh, Edward Partridge. But this is what Brian and I were just arguing about. And this is completely like, every historian that's listening to me is rolling their eyes right now, but I don't care. I think this is a, a fun idea. Johnny Stevenson, who has passed away unfortunately, great historian in Nauvoo, He had a theory. He once told me that he believed more people died from poisoning in the Nauvoo Legion than any other cause of death or something. So it's always got my brain thinking, but Edward Partridge dies and the official cause of death, unless someone wants to correct me in the comments, is stress and persecution, which I wasn't aware that you could die from. And then of course the church acquires his property and Joseph marries his daughters, but, um, Brian Buchanan would like the record to state that he thinks it's probably just good old tuberculosis because Nauvoo was teeming with cholera, tuberculosis, and malaria. People were dying all the time in Nauvoo. So it's very likely it could have been that. I think that if it were that, they would have said that, but the official cause of death is uh, stress. And that's when we bring in these girls who um, start working for the Smith family.
3: I think you're muted, Bill.
2: Perfect. So I want to go back to Jared for just a second, which he's saying like, look, these women didn't say anything about Joseph Smith. Do you know roughly Warren Jeffs and all of his wives while he's there in the compound, not after he's arrested and put away, but while he's there, do do we have many of those wives coming forward and saying anything?
1: No, in fact, I don't think any of them came forward until after, at least to my knowledge,
0: yeah. um,
1: because I've been well acquainted with some of the women who first left. I, I don't, I, I would say to Jared's comment, I don't know what he's saying specifically, but to what end? What does that? What does that matter to me? It, so it's okay if you're marrying a 14-year-old if she was happy about it her whole life. I mean, when her whole life is Mormonism, no, it, that's not exactly how we do these arguments um you know when we talk about abuse and things like that it's it's complicated when it comes to mormon polygamy because like i said it's institutionalized but do you think it's okay for a modern polygamous man right now to marry a 14 year old girl because that's essentially what you're saying and this argument that oh times were different back then well times were the same as they are now people understood that that was too young which is why most people didn't get married at 14. And those who did, it was kind of um, a situation where the girl was usually in a vulnerable position. Luckily now we have more resources for girls, but girls are still trafficked into marriages. So I just, I guess I don't get what the thrust of his argument is, is to prove that Joseph was a nice guy. We know he was a nice guy. People liked him. He was very nice to a lot of people. That doesn't change the, the theology that he started
2: yeah he, he may have been a little nicer than warren jeff's from from the stories i've read um, and some of the things that went on and yet as you point out jeff's wives weren't speaking out either so back to the partridge sisters um yeah eliza and uh, i want to say ann but is that am i saying that wrong maybe it's eliza ann and the other
3: i think uh, it's laurie and tracy
2: laurie and tracy partridge yeah. The Partridge family. Yeah. But no, what, what is the, the what's the other sister's name? So
1: I- Eliza's fine. It's Emily and Eliza. Emily mm-hmm. was the younger sister. Eliza's the older sister. Um, Eliza from my read on this was never into this. Even later on, she was like, it was not my thing. Eliza had a really hard life. She was sick a lot. Emily seemed to be into it after she got over the initial revulsion to it. But yeah, um, Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to do your little overview and then I can weigh in?
2: This will be the quick one. So, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, goes to each of these sisters separately says that, you know, you're, you're so special. You're to be my plural wife. And he, and if I remember right, the language is this kind of couching it like you're the one I have to practice polygamy and, and you're the one the Lord told me, but he does this to both sisters without Emma's knowledge. Um, Ends up, some sort of um, relationship begins, and uh, these sisters don't know about each other, at least not initially. And then uh, Joseph Smith asks Emma; he's like, he keeps pushing her to build a practice polygamy. So she finally gives him permission and gets to choose who it is. And he and she says, "How about these Partridge sisters?" So Joseph, having to pretend that it's the first marriage when in reality it's the second has himself sealed to these two sisters with Emma's now seeing it happen, when in reality that's a mock ceremony because it's already occurred. Your thoughts.
1: Well, first of all, I said, I attributed something to Lucy Walker that's actually a Partridge sister. I think it's Emily who says that, you know, in those days, polygamous women couldn't live publicly. She was comparing it later on. That was Emily Partridge that said it. So these girls had stayed in the Smith home for a few years. They'd been around him for a while. My, my read on this is that Joseph had his eye on Emily first. She seemed to be one of the more beautiful of the two, more, uh, outgoing, I guess. And he, he tried to teach them different parts of it at different times. He started talking in in my opinion, she, she has a quote in her, uh, Affidavit where she's talking about what he would tell his wives with an S. And I wonder if he didn't just sort of throw that term out to sort of, you know, get her used to that. And then, of course, he starts introducing this doctrine. She doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense to her. She's really upset. The way that he does it is really coarse. Their stories are really sad. He puts them in different rooms and then, you know, talks to them. They're very upset about it. At one point, I think it's Emily is taken to Heber Kimball's house. They get all the kids. It's all like cloak and dagger. He's like, you got to come here. Don't tell anyone you're here. She's pretending to play with Heber Kimball's children as a child because they send the children away and they make it seem like Emily's going with them. So no one can see. And I think that that's a really interesting detail to leave in to an autobiography And I think it's because they, she was a child, you know, they saw her as young and sort of playful and that's when she first is introduced to it. And um, he, he basically says, if you tell anyone you're betraying me, you're betraying your people, you're betraying God. And she, she marries him and then she finds out her sister's married to him too. Now the sham marriage is interesting because this is when he introduces as far as we know, the doctrine to Emma with the revelation and things like that. He says that you can pick wives. She picks two that are already married to him. So they do the sham marriage with these four women, not knowing that he's married to 16 women at the time. Uh, I think that that's really heartbreaking. What I think is really bold is Emily claims that I think it's on their second night of marriage after being sealed um, the second time, she spends the night and he spends the night in her room while Emma was there. And, you know, you can read all, Brian Hales actually has a really good account of the Partridge sister, so I would look into that. But I just think like, ah, so now you've introduced this thing, but now also she has to hear you going from wife to wife in the room. That's pretty brutal.
3: Mm. Well, now he doesn't have to sneak around behind Emma's back because she's approved of these two, right?
1: Well, he doesn't with four women. He did with all the other 12. But
3: yeah. yeah, do we,
2: and again, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, insist that my memory of all this is correct. I don't have any notes in front of me. I'm not sitting, reading something. Um, my understanding from the language in lots of these plural marriages, specifically to the younger women uh, or children, I think is probably the right term. Um it, it, it seems as though often these women report back later on in life when they talk about it, that Joseph used language that suggested that they were the one like I have to practice polygamy. I got to do this with somebody. There is an angel. There's a sword. Maybe it's on fire, but it's got to be you. You're the one. Is that what you found as well?
1: Yeah, and I, I think that you can you can actually see a pattern in a lot of how he did a lot of these marriages. And I would say for the women who are underage, it's usually um I mean, Helen Mark Kimball was was vulnerable in so much that her parents were willing to trade her for salvation. And so she didn't have which is a very common thing in the FLDS if you talk to to child brides, they say, you know, my parents literally gave me up on the altar of sacrifice. And they have taken this quote that's been used by these women to describe their pain to sort of turn it into this beautiful doctrine. Now, look, you're sacrificing for this great cause. The idea is you should suffer. It should suck for you. You should be making a sacrifice because sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. That that idea really becomes warped, I think, because of polygamy, because He's offering them salvation, but he's doing it under threat when they're vulnerable. The other pattern he has is to take men and their family to convince them. I think in uh, the Partridge sisters case, he he got a Durfee blanking on her first name right now. Elizabeth Durfee, he got Elizabeth Durfee, who was 47 at the time, to come in and to sort of teach the girls how it was going to be. And we call these mothers in Israel. And they still actually exist in some fundamentalist communities where they have older women that are there to sort of introduce these young girls into the principle. And when you're a young girl and all the adults in your life are sort of pressuring you to do this thing, what choice do you have?
3: Well, Jeffrey Epstein had a female procurer too, didn't he?
1: I think, you know, if you read the book Half the Sky, they their thesis is one of the greatest upholders of patriarchy are women. You know, it's the women who, in order to get, in Mormon feminism, we call it hard power and soft power. Hard power are is power to actually make decisions. Soft power gets you so far. So in the church, it's, you know, priesthood authority. And we have soft power in the church as women through our husbands. That's just mimicking Victorian times. Women had power through their husbands as property, right? So I think that these women found power. They found power and proximity to power by helping bring other women into it. If you're 47, your power, especially your, uh, power to have children isn't very limited your time is sort of done in in 1842 so what power does an aging woman have she can exploit younger women that's one way to get it and that's what that's what I think some of these women did
2: yeah when when often in systems like this and you can see it in modern LDS Mormonism too that women, tend to get that portion of the power they do have access to by upholding the patriarchy and by supporting the system as it is and supporting the men who are in charge and making them essentially look good and supporting them, being able to carry out their plans. Um, when, when these women and it's multiple women and children, who are told they have a limited amount of time to make a decision that if they don't make the right decision, then, you know, eternity is at stake. It made me think, as you were talking a minute ago and me kind of connecting the dots, we have this thing in Mormonism, modern Mormonism, this lesson on the lick cupcake, which we all hate. And um, in some ways, when you take these children and, and other and older women as well, in some of these situations, and you say, look, here's this small little window. You get all of eternity. Everything's going to be great. But if you don't do this, something is now going to be lost. Something's going to be broken. Something's going to be gone. You won't have access to it. It reminded me of the Lick Cupcake, uh, lick, uh, cupcake lesson that we often uh, saw happen in church that we all hated. And, and I think that we ought to see how powerful rhetoric, um, certain kinds of words, certain kind of words that induce pressure That makes someone feel like they have this small moment to make a decision. And if you make the wrong decision, then everything will be screwed up for you for all eternity. I can't imagine the kind of pressure one would feel in those situations.
1: Yeah. And like I said, it's not just social. It's not just religious because Mormonism was a new animal with these women uh, they're they're basically the first generation of of Mormons. For most of these girls, at least in the stories that we're talking about right now, they were kind of born into it, and their whole families were were into it. Some of the other wives entered it freely. I think um, I think they were interested in the idea. I think Joseph Smith was charismatic. I think that they offered power, but unfortunately, what it, what it means is it, it creates a system that I think is so harmful, that still shows up in many of the fundamentalist communities, unfortunately, and, and in our own, which is women don't have power except through their husbands. And if you are in a polygamous community, and the prophet wants you or a leader wants you, that's not just good for you, that's good for your family. And why would you be so selfish as to rob your family from something like that. That's sort of the thinking. And it's definitely the thinking with this, when we're talking this new radical idea to these people about eternal salvation, they're in Nauvoo, there's death all around them. They're losing people. The end is near. Jesus is coming. Um, Yeah. Get on board. God works in very mysterious ways, even if it makes you sick, but look what we just went through in Missouri.
2: Yeah, I did an episode with Jonathan Streeter on the happiness letter, and um, you can see how behind the scenes Joseph Smith and those who are upholding him will work to ruin the reputation of these women if if they speak out and, and if they cause any kind of rumbles at all in the community. Um, I've got one more thing I want to cover, and then RFM, anything from you on the Partridge sisters?
3: No, I was just going to talk a little bit about Sarah Whitney, if there's time.
2: Please, go for it.
3: Oh, no, you go ahead. Okay.
2: The, the last thing I want to talk about is just the Relief Society presidency. So when Emma Smith is first called as the Relief Society president, uh, her first counselor was Sarah M. Cleveland. This I am reading off Wikipedia. Her second counselor was Elizabeth Ann Whitney. Those were both plural wives of Joseph Smith, correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, I find this dynamic... I'm laughing because there's a part of it that's funny and there's a part of it that's tragic and and the portion that's tragic is significantly, exponentially larger. But this idea that Emma is fighting against polygamy, she's called as the first Relief Society president, giving her some level of power. In some ways, it feels like Joseph Smith trying to appease her so that she will stop causing trouble. But in as the Relief Society president, she is being very vocal about being against polygamy, meanwhile the counselors that are her, you know, left and right hand man, um, they are secretly, I, I think, unknown to Emma. And you can maybe uh, share whether you believe that as well. I, I think it's unknown to Emma. And meanwhile, these folks are kind of in secret behind Emma's back, going like, ah, "We're we're the we're the wives of Joseph Smith. Like, what do we do? Like like she's against it, and uh, it, it had to have been a." embarrassing if she ever did find out it had to been kind of an atrocious position for Joseph Smith to place his dear wife, Emma in that she is unbeknownst to her surrounded by his plural wives that she doesn't even know about who are there to help her carry out her work. And the thing she saw at least in part as her work was to speak out against polygamy. Your thoughts on that, by the way.
1: I, I mean, I think that, it's such an interesting insight into the pattern of relationships that Mormon women still possess today. And I think that you can trace some of the roots back to the Relief Society. We talk about the Relief Society being the greatest women's organization in the world, but it wasn't for at least in my own personal experience. I didn't really know how to relate with women in Mormonism Um because it was always a competitive thing. I remember even my best friends, we were sort of judgy about whose houses were cleaner and who could make a better food because that's what mattered to the men in our lives. And so if I was a better cook than my neighbor, then I was really doing something right. And I think that comes, that jealousy and that gossip comes from this scarcity in in you know these patriarchal systems. So the Relief Society was set up by a man. We always say it's the first organization about women from women. It was actually presided by men at the time and given the blessing of men at the time and set up for Joseph's very specific purposes. I think Emma saw it as a charitable organization. She saw it as a way for her to get power. And I I actually don't think we should put anything wrong with that. You know, men in Mormonism are getting power all the time. So what's wrong with Emma wanting some? She wanted some control in her life and she was obviously very good at it so she saw it as that joseph was in a bad position i think he uh you know found women that were close to him so he could have proximity to them so that makes sense why he was marrying emma's friends and i actually don't know that those women were as concerned about emma's well-being as their own i could be wrong about that we have no private you know information but be- of what the women were thinking at the time, but my sense is that they knew about it. And there is a later resentment, at least in the Utah period, when these women are talking about it, that Emma sort of never gotten bored. So my sense is that they were kind of angry that she, they couldn't tell her. And that's just points to the shallowness of relationships. Emma thinks these women are her friends and they see her as someone who's not as righteous as them. And I mean, I just think it's one of the hard parts about, about the way that we relate to women still, we're, we're we compete, we're awful to each other. And it wasn't until Mormon feminist friends where I realized that women can actually build each other up that I realized that that wasn't a normal, healthy thing, but you see it all the time. Um, women are only valuable in proximity to power. And so they're going to be fighting each other for it, even their friends.
2: Yeah, we have the story about the Relief Society being the, you know, oldest women's run organization. But as, as we all know, the autonomy there is extremely limited. As soon as a bishop or a stake president or the church generally says, this is how we're going to do it, that's how we do it. And those decisions are made by men and the women have very limited um Limited uh, directions that they can take the Relief Society in and limited ways in which they can carry out that work So it, it certainly isn't and as this image, by the way, this is on the church's website I still want to say lds.org, but now I've got a mouthful church of Jesus Christ org um, As you can see it's still the men there who are enacting this organization and putting it into place um, And again, I know that there was a little more autonomy in the beginning less so than today um, But not a whole lot um, that's all I've got from my stories. RFM, let's talk about this Whitney case, and then we'll yeah. uh, we'll go to some phone calls.
3: In that picture, Joseph Smith seems to have an unusual expression on his face. He looks like he's looking at this blonde in the lower right. <laughs> what do you think he's thinking in this picture?
2: Uh, he, he just got rid of the last maid. He needs a new one.
3: <laughs> well, here's the deal. I don't know if Elizabeth Whitney was a plural wife of Joseph Smith. Now, you can uh, let me know because I know his – Her daughter was. This might have been one of those mother-daughter situations. But Elizabeth Whitney was the wife of Newell K. Whitney, correct? Their daughter, Sarah Whitney, was one of those incidents where Joseph Smith convinced the parents to give them their daughter, give him their daughter, Sarah, in plural marriage. And this was the usual kind of thing. We'll, We'll cover it really quickly here, and I'll just tell you what little I know about it. Is that, um, yeah, the usual promises were made of exaltation to the parents and the entire family. If she would uh, get on board with this whole idea and marry Joseph, eventually she did. There were a couple of other things that happened, uh, one of which was that she had, Sarah had a brother named Horace, who was not at all on board with this idea. In fact, he didn't think this was a good idea at all. And so he was a little bit recalcitrant. And The parents, Newell and Elizabeth Whitney, were concerned about Horace. So was Joseph Smith, but they were concerned about his salvation. So what Joseph Smith did was he made a promise to the parents that as long as their daughter married him and sealed up the family to eternal life, that that would also take care of Horace. And that even if Horace strayed, left the church, got mad about the situation and left Mormonism, eventually, he would be redeemed in the celestial kingdom and live with the family there forever. That was the power of this sealing as it was portrayed by Joseph Smith. This ends up having a life of its own and continuing today in Mormonism, it's like Lindsay has said, in Mormonism, all roads lead back to polygamy. Everything in Mormonism, if you follow the strands, goes back to polygamy. And this is one of them because this idea about the tentacles of divine love, You've heard that phrase, right, Bill, Lindsay? Mm -hmm. Uh, It comes up every now and again in general conference. And I think Elder Bednar came down with a big thumbs down on that idea. But nevertheless, there are other people who've mentioned it, even in my lifetime, even in the past few decades. It comes up from time to time to console parents who have wayward children, right? Eventually, they will come back the tentacles of divine love which sounds like something out of 20,000 leagues under the sea and Captain Nemo will reach after them and pull them along up to the celestial kingdom with them. The funny thing is, is that if you go back to find out where this quote comes from, because it's kind of an unusual expression, the tentacles of divine love. I believe that it goes back to, and originates with an apostle at the beginning of the 20th century or the end of the 19th named Orson F. Whitney and Orson F. Whitney, believe it or not was, the son of Horace Whitney. So we can see this, this may be actually the genesis of this whole idea of tentacles of divine love, being the promise that Joseph Smith made to the Whitney parents that everything would be okay with Horace if they gave him Sarah and they got married. Because by virtue of that ceiling, not only would the parents be saved, but also. Horace, even if he strayed, would eventually be safe. So that's one thing which I find interesting. The second thing is the sham marriage, right? Because Sarah, they get married. I think it's 1842. They get married. Sarah's 17. And now she's going to turn 18, right? And she's really available. She's on the market. She's supposed to go to all the debutante balls. But she can't be going out with anybody. She can't be responding to any invitation from uh, young men her age to go courting or whatever it was they did that back then because she's married, right? Secretly to Joseph Smith. So something has to be done. Something has to be done. Well, fortunately, there's this other guy in the community, a good Mormon with the last name of Kingsbury. I think his first name was Joseph as well. And as good luck would have it, his wife had just died. Well, that's bad for Joseph Kingsbury because he really loved his wife. But the good news is, is that now he's available. So what Joseph Smith does is he goes to Kingsbury, and gets him to engage in a sham civil marriage to Sarah in order he to take Sarah.
1: About, he wasn't crazy about that idea.
3: No, he wasn't. But he does it because he's being righteous and also because promises were made to him, right? So there's an actual legitimate legal civil marriage of Kingsbury to Sarah, who is Joseph Smith's plural wife and has been for about a year now, in order to excuse the fact that she can't. she's off the market. So she's really off the market because of Joseph Smith, but that's a secret. So we'll marry her as a sham marriage to this gentleman who just lost his wife. So the entire community will understand she's off the market and that's why she can't be going out with anybody. or are uh, being courted. Right. Okay. So having said all of that, the promise that Joseph Smith makes to Kingsbury is that if he will engage in this sham marriage, which he knows is a sham and I think it's supposed to be a, uh, a platonic relationship. It really is a marriage in name only, even though there's actually a marriage certificate that, or a license that survives to this day. And you know, whose name is on it's Joseph Smith because he performed the marriage, right? It may be one of the few signatures that we have of Joseph Smith.
1: And Kingsbury admitted to the fact as well.
3: Yeah. This He's is to- like
1: a pretended marriage,
3: total pretended marriage. And the promise that Joseph Smith made to Kingsbury was if he goes along with this, then Joseph Smith has a great new ordinance, and it's a sealing for the dead that Kingsbury can now be sealed for time and eternity, or at least for eternity, to his deceased wife.
1: Polygamy is everywhere.
3: Yes, and so this this may be the first. I don't know if it's the first. This may be not only the first idea about straying children being brought back to the celestial kingdom by virtue of the sealing uh, of someone else. But it also may be the orig- origination of the idea of doing eternal sealings for those who have died.
1: And just so as a f- interesting fact, she actually shows that it's a sham marriage because she ends up marrying Heber C. Kimball right after Joseph Smith's death for time and eternity. So then it becomes a real deal. Wow,
2: I uh, I want to put up on the screen here something. Let's see here. Add to the stream. So this was 1839. We've all heard this scripture, DNC 121. But think about this for a moment. If if the church isn't what it claims to be, which I'm gonna take that position, I'll leave you guys to make your own public statement one way or the other if you want to, or just stay away from it. But DNC one twenty-one, given in eighteen thirty-nine, right in the midst of this stuff getting off the ground, and Joseph Smith penning or dictating this revelation, allegedly. Um, imagine if this is his words, we have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion right in the midst of these stories involving deep coercion, um, deep pressure, manipulation, rhetoric intended to push somebody to the very brink of having to do things they really don't want to do. Um, to me, that is, it's an insane that those words that the church uses comes out of this kind of moment in time that this stuff's all going on. Any thoughts so, from you guys?
1: To me, I would say, I would remind people that we need to look at polygamy as as it functions in Mormon doctrine, theology, and culture, less about sex and more about power. You know, people, there's a huge argument, did Joseph Smith have sex with some of his plural wives? Which, by the way, I think we do have evidence of the women that we talked about today, he uh, consummated all of those marriages, I believe. But um, there's this whole debate, did he or didn't he? And I'm like, that's not even the important question. The important question is what function did it take? Because taking a 14-year-old girl as your wife is traumatic just, and it limits power, it limits opportunities. And so even if he didn't sleep with the women, which I believe that he did with probably most of them, uh, it, it's about power. It's not about sex. It's about power. Women become access to your importance and your priesthood. There, I mean, Brigham Young was very honest about it. Heber Kimball was. They are jewels in your eternal crown. That's what they are. That's how they function. And so, women are the connecting piece to getting your salvation. Your daughter now is a bargaining chip. She's a gem that you can buy and trade for your eternal salvation that's how polygamy functions it's all about priesthood power which is why i don't have problems with polyamorous relationships that are equitable that uh, engage in consent and things like that but mormon polygamy is punitive it depends on um eternal uh, penalties and to me that's what makes it coercive now that said i do know some polygamists who don't practice it that way but i would say they're pretty rare
3: Mm, gotcha do we have time for a personal question for me too, Please. Lindsay? Yeah. Lindsay, I know that when you started your year in polygamy podcast, see, I can't say it correctly. If I force myself, that was a few years back. And my recollection is, is that you had started that out in a way to sort of publicly uh, process your own research. And your whole uh, goal was to get to the bottom of all these polygamy stories, to put the pieces together and come out with a faithful answer. Uh, that, that's correct, right? That was your goal?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't even say that I would have articulated it as finding a faithful answer. I just thought there was one. I had such faith in, in Mormonism that it would be okay, if that makes sense.
3: Right. How did that now, work out for you?
1: Well, not great. I'm wearing a tank top and I'm talking to you guys. But, <laughs> uh, I, I'm still very loyal to, to Mormonism as a culture and as a people. I, I feel very... Uh, engaged and active in the Mormon movement, if I will, Morm- Mormon history is very dear to me. I connect with my Mormonism faithfully through the history. But I think what is hard is that the history is not often told faithfully. It's told dishonestly to perpetuate an old narrative that doesn't work for people. It's It doesn't work for people anymore. I don't know that it ever worked for people. And yeah, so that's my answer to your question. I started out, it, it broke my heart. The history of it broke my heart. It continually breaks my heart. It, uh, all the time, all the time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, these stories, you know, we went through them fast. I hope people will take their time kind of processing each of these. If you don't know these stories, there is plenty of information out there on the internet on both sides. If, of the way. If
1: only there was a podcast with hundreds of episodes.
2: Yeah, we're going to absolutely put your podcast in the show notes. We did put the information to Sunstone out, and before the show's over, I'll put the Year of Polygamy podcast in the the comments here so that everybody's seeing those. Uh, Do you have time for a few phone calls, Lindsay? Sure. Okay, so um, I'll put the banner up here, but, folks, by now, you should be knowing the number. 435-200-3478, or, Lindsay, help us out here. It is
1: Oh, uh, we do this
2: yeah there yes. we go look at there you that go. thank you so um i'll put the call up on the screen we're actually getting one re- oops something just went wrong
1: can i comment about this comment about he had an overactive libido please about sex firm i think it was about sex and about power i don't think it was just one or the other
2: yeah go ahead go ahead Lindsay. go ahead and tell that story
1: Oh, yeah. So someone's commenting that, you know, it was about sex for Joseph Smith, not power. I think it's both. I think it was sex and power. I think the fact that Joseph Smith was able to get men to give up their daughters and their wives, that's about power. That's not about sex. That's about domination and alpha male stuff.
2: Gotcha. Go. so our first phone call Lindsay is Michael um, and by the way I'm kind of jumping in there I wasn't really listening what was going on cuz I'm That's trying fine. to get the phone call and take the name I'm assuming you you made your comment and you're done good um Michael is our first phone call Michael you are on Mormonism Live of course with RFM and Bill Real but with the fabulous fantastic Lindsay Hansen Park talking about polygamy what's on your mind tonight my friend
0: uh, yeah, calling from the great state of Washington. And I'm a huge, huge fan. I, uh, I was lucky enough to see RFM at the Kirkland. Uh, 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 what was that uh, presentation or after your podcast um, in Kirkland, there was a reception. And uh, my my uh, never Mormon wife came along, who never understands why I keep getting interested in in ex Mormon stuff. She says, "Well, you've never we you've never been with the church for the years we've been married. Why do you even care anymore?" So, but you were so pleasant that um, she. Uh, what she was saying, well, I guess I can see why you go to some of these things and, and why you care about these ex Mormon things. And I'm also a huge fan of, of Lindsay. Uh, listen to all of your, uh, your episodes of the, of your polygamy. I just have to say though, you made the wrong choice. You should have chosen core um brother Brigham, brother young for your uh, uh, music, for your episode. When hey, I heard guys, that, happened, it's, like,
1: it's on like, Mormon that. history podcast. That's our theme song
0: love those exactly. hurt so my question is well it's it's it is, it is a question i'm sorry i can't hear the, the on that but uh, my my question is this um uh it's related to polygamy with everybody all the ex-mormons got really worked up when the november 15th policy came out dealing with um uh the children of gay members but what, what really struck me was that this was a policy that had been in place for polygamist ch- for the children of polygamists for a long, long time, and nobody seemed to care. But ex Mormons didn't care that the church had these these policies that were very hurtful towards people from polygamous families. But when November fifteenth happened and they were now uh, targeting gay people with the same policy, now everybody got really upset, and I I I think it was terrible. Uh, the the November fifteenth policy, I, I, I was totally against that, but I just it really struck me that there's that it, both the ex Mormon community, everybody has like blinders that hey, it's no problem that we're doing this to uh, polygamous people or people of polygamous ancestry. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and any broader thoughts, Bill or RFM that you have of why ex Mormons don't because, to my knowledge, that policy hasn't even changed to date. Um, regarding the, tre- the how the LDS Church is treating um, the children of polygamist um, families, even though they've reversed the policy for um, regarding gay families. Yeah. I'll take my answer off the air. Thanks. Perfect. Thank you. Do
1: you want, to Do you want me yeah, to dive in?
2: Please, if you want to chime in, Lindsay.
1: Here's what I would say, and I'm going to call out ex-morms a little bit. This is where ex-Mormons haven't unpacked a lot of their Mormon stuff. You know, I often say ex-Mormons are just Mormons in reverse. This is one of them. We don't see polygamists as people. We just don't. Uh, We don't consider them as valid. We have been told narratives our whole lives, at least my whole life upbringing, that they're weird and wicked and gross. And so I don't think people see them as marginalized. They don't care about them. I feel differently, of course, because I've seen in a different perspective, but he's absolutely right with this policy. I've had plenty of people. In fact, when the policy came out, that was some of the first thing polygamists started messaging me. They're like, well, I mean, I'm sorry for gay people in your church, but this is how it's always been for us. I was asked to cut off my parents. I did cut off my parents. I didn't cut off my parents. I, I think even in the TLC show, Sister Wives, the Brown Family, there was that scenario. And what was interesting is, well, one of the kids was trying to join the church uh, in a Mormon marriage or go on a mission. It's been a while. Brady Williams is a polygamist. His kid was in the exact same situation. And both of their ecclesiastical leaders did something different. One of them let him go and one of them told him not to. And it just depends. Um, it's very arbitrary and and stupid and dangerous. And that's why that was my first thought when the policy came out was I'd seen how inconsistent it had been adhered to with a polygamist and how messy it was. It's just a bad, bad bad idea.
2: Hey, just FYI uh, Lindsay. You probably, if you've watched Sister Wives, uh, our pawn shop here, Family Pawn, has been on the show several times, and our ownership was kind of close to that situation. It was as it was happening, where one of the Browns' daughters was trying to join the church, and he tried to, you know, his limited influence tried to help that move through, and it was brick wall after brick wall after brick wall, even in spite of the mission president on the front end. Um, thinking that it was going to be easy peasy to get this all to happen. Uh, it wasn't, um, caller, you are our second call for the night. Uh, tell us your name. You're on with Lindsay Hanson park. We're talking about polygamy. What do you got for us?
4: Hi, Lindsay, this is Eric and I'm excited to talk to you. You're just the best. I'll, I'll ask my questions real quick and then, and then jump off here. Um, two questions. First is regarding Mike Quinn. I I understand before he passed, he was working on a book about post-manifesto polygamy. I wondered if you had any information on what was happening with that, whether that might still get published or if a draft ever happened or or what was going to happen to that research. Um, my second question is, is about you specifically. I mean, I, I think you're a really um, unique voice in Mormonism. And despite not being a believer, you're still able to talk about Mormonism with, with a deep affection. And that's something that's been very important to me as, as I've been kind of working out my, my relationship with Mormonism over the last couple of years. I, I, I wondered about two things about that. Number one, how did you get to that place? Um, and number two, is, is that really you? I know, I know sometimes for different audiences or different podcasts or whatever, uh, you may focus on, on different aspects of yourself. But, I mean, are, are you really, do you really harbor that, um, that deep of a, an affection for Mormonism? And is, are you still able to feel it uh, with regularity, I guess, is my question. So thank you uh, very much, and I look forward to hearing your answer. Thank you,
1: caller. Okay. Really quick, Mike Quinn stuff. We don't actually know what's been happening with that. The family hasn't really talked much about it. So we're, there are people caring and paying attention to it. He was, he was researching post-manifesto marriages up until 1925. And so there are a few of us that are very concerned about that. So we'll make sure that his stuff isn't being lost. We do know that um, a lot of it's housed at Yale, I believe is where his personal papers are. So luckily, a lot of his brain won't be lost to us because he has brilliant information. As to my own journey experience, yeah, I'm loyal to Mormonism. I feel very much like this is our mess, Uh, um, at least for me, Utah Mormon with ancestry on both sides. It feels like this is a mess that we're sort of left to clean up and how we clean it up and what that looks like is, you know, different for other people. But for me, it's uh, acknowledging our past and trying to. Be as charitable as we can to the people that were caught in the system and also not uh, repeat those things ourselves. To me, I, I really value the cultural aspects of redeeming the dead. I believe that's how we redeem our dead is to break generational patterns that are harmful. I It makes sense to me why our ancestors chose the choices that they did. And now I think we have different contexts and we should make different choices. So I'm very loyal to Mormonism and no it's not it's not an act I think people, anyone that's around me knows how how much a part of my life it is unfortunately I get a little embarrassed about that sometimes I'm very connected to Mormonism through the history I feel almost religious about the history. There's, I, I call Mormon history a cult. It's very much uh, a cult where it's high stakes. And if you get one little thing wrong, people will come at you and they will come at you hard. And it's it's kind of exciting that way. I, I don't know. Mormon, Mormons matter to me. I love Mormon people. I love ex-Mormon people. We're a big, giant, ugly mess. And of course we are. <laughs> if you look at our history, the history to me is so faith affirming in the sense that it tells me every day, of course, this is why we're so messed up. Of course, this is why Mormonism is so hard. This is why there's so much abuse. This is why there's so much depression and suicide. Of course, the history is constantly reaffirming that to me because it's just generational trauma. And I feel like it's our job to clean it up.
2: Beautiful. Our uh, our next caller is Tricia. Tricia, you are on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real, But you've got Lindsay Hansen Park here. And we're talking about polygamy. What is uh, your question for us tonight?
5: Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so, I actually am related to Fanny. Um, last name, we've always called it Olga. So, there you go. Um, I actually, my great great grandparents are her parents. Um, and it was quite a um, shelf breaker for me when I found out that um, I was related to supposedly Joseph Smith's first um, wife and how young she was. But one thing that has always bothered me, um, is the fact that I know that Danny's parents and family ended up in Utah. That's where my family lives now, um, in Southern Utah by you, Bill. Um, but my question for, um, Lindsay is, what do we know about the reaction of Fanny's family? Like how, um, how did they react to all of this coming out and um, the the um, relationship with her? And Joseph, I, as a mom, would have been furious. So that's my question. And I will take it off the air. Thanks so much. Perfect.
1: So to be honest with you, I don't think that there's very much. So the Algers, thank you for that. Um, they We do see the Utah line. In fact, I'm doing some Southern Utah history right now. And we see some Algers doing some stuff in Santa Clara and things like that. Uh, the, we do know that the family stayed on and they were righteous, but Fanny stayed back. And I believe it was in Indiana. Her and Solomon stay the rest of their lives and they stay there. She never comes over. She joins a different church at some point. Uh, we don't have much. They didn't talk about it, which to me points to people saw it as an affair at the time. I think that there's a shame around it. Her, she wasn't the acknowledged first plural wife of Joseph Smith for many years in the Utah period. They, they thought it was Louisa Beeman. Uh, and there were several women before her, but that's who, how most Mormons would have understood it at the time was Louisa Beeman. So I don't think that they saw it as uh, glorified as we do now.
2: Good, good. Glad, uh, glad to have you chime in on that. Um, so our last caller of the night, uh, if you guys are okay with that, last caller of the night, this will be, this is Heather Heather, you are on Mormonism Live with Lindsay Hansen-Park talking about polygamy tonight with RFM and I. What uh, What is your question or comment for Lindsay?
5: Hi, Lindsay.
1: It's been several years since I've been kind of up to date on what's going on in ex-Mormonism. Um, and I'm just wondering, given like the cultural trends we're seeing across the country with political nonsense and you know the few things i occasionally see online about like des mats and stuff like that i'm wondering if there's any spark of any hint of polygamy maybe making a resurgence in the more conservative offshoots of mormonism that are coming around or within mormonism itself or if you see any of that kind of stuff rearing its head in the mainstream church
2: cool we'll hang up with you yeah let her answer thank you my friend
1: uh, this is a fun one to talk about because I don't think it ever went away. I think it pops up all the time. I think it's part of Mormon psyche. In fact, I think ex-Mormons still, uh, you'll see it in ex-Mormons. They're, you know, when people first go through a faith crisis, then they start thinking, hmm, polyamory, because it's its just coded into our DNA. So I think with faithful Mormons, uh, I see it all the time, new break-off sex, uh all the time trying to experiment with this. Uh, Most recently, there are some movements that are coming out of the sort of, without getting too esoteric, the Chad Daybell movement, sort of some of the similar theologies, this idea that we had multiple mortal probations, which means in a previous life, we had many lives, and in a previous life, I could have been, you know, Martha Washington, and married to George Washington, and since someone did our temple work, I'm still seal- sealed to him, so if some modern dude that's not my husband ends up being George Washington reincarnated, we get a hookup because our ceiling is for eternity. That's happening all over the place. I would say Davis County is a hot spot for it right now without saying too much, um, but militias, yeah, a lot of the militias, I don't think people realize a lot of the leadership in some of the top militias, uh, three percenter movement, things like that, they're fundamentalists. They're Mormon fundamentalists, Mormon polygamists that engage with LDS people. So it's absolutely in the water. I don't think it's ever went away. Uh, a lot of these people find old texts, um, and instead of having a faith crisis and leaving the church, they have a faith crisis, and they, you know, join fundamentalism. And I think that it's polygamy is a lot more common in our communities than we probably realize.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Lindsay, this has been like a... I don't want to say fun in the way like we covered a lot of trauma and covered a lot of uh, unhealthiness that happened in early Mormon history with Joseph Smith and, and the practice of polygamy. But it's enjoyable to always be sitting uh, in space with you and, and talking about Mormon history and really appreciate all the chances that I've had to do that. And um, I guess before we kind of close off, RFM, any other last thoughts from you?
3: No, I just want to express my appreciation as well for Lindsay coming on the show, sharing your expertise on the subject. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Appreciate
1: Thanks. it. And uh, Bill's down there with all the co down in Southern Utah.
3: Yeah. I'm well, hanging out with
2: all the Centennial Park folks and the Colorado City, and they come into the shop quite a bit. And, um, you know, we, we probably bump elbows with some of the same people, Lindsay, because I know you do a lot of good work down here in Southern Utah, kind of helping these communities as they, stretch themselves and 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 begin to kind of overcome this trauma that's in in their history and in their systems um before we let you go though plug one more time sunstone and i did put the year of polygamy in the comments section and i also put it up on the screen for a bit but please plug the podcast as well one last time
1: thanks bill and you guys have been great supporters of sunstone too i think you guys was it 2019 you were there
2: mm-hmm. and, and other yeah. years as well but yes
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, and other years as well. So this year we could really use your support. We did a whole online one last year. If you are remote, you can support Sunstone by buying a digital ticket, which which gives you access to all the presentations digitally. But if you can come and be in person and see us and interact with us, that's really great too. So July 28th through the 31st, Register at sunsun.org. It's the easiest way to keep us going. We've been around for 45 years and we're a really liminal space because everybody hates us. Uh, People think we're too Mormon and we're not Mormon enough and we're trying to keep this mix of people just dialoguing from all sorts of it. So you can support that if you think that's important at sunson.org, And the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast with Brian Buchanan and I is always a good time. We're in the Nauvoo period right now. I can't wait till we get in the Utah period. It's gonna be awesome. And of course, Year of Polygamy. And if you listen to the earlier episodes, the music is very embarrassing. I'm sorry for that. I crowdsourced it. And uh, yeah, but you live and you learn. And I appreciate all the help that and support that people have given me over the years.
2: Love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, we appreciate your time. And uh, unfortunately, like every, every moment uh, in this program, the show has to come to an end. But I was hoping maybe we could at least finish uh, with one last uh, little quote here that I think is the opposite of what we what we did tonight.
4: Give Brother Joseph a break.